0: What's up everybody, welcome to Talking Again Podcast, I am your host Fidel, this is The Tap. Thank you for tuning in and please make sure and subscribe to the channel and don't forget to click on the notification bell. You can also find the show on all your popular podcast platforms such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen. Let's get this show started. Nathan Gower is my guest today at Talking Again Podcast, The Tap Studios. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here first of all absolutely um thanks to laura first that's right for sending out the uh, mutual the connection yeah absolutely this, this happened real quick to be honest with you i mean mm. i know she she mentioned to me about you uh months ago yeah it's been a minute yeah mm. but it just never came to fruition as far as setting up that appointment mm. but uh this I'm happened in place quick. yeah you know. this happened quick and uh we're here i didn't get to do too much research i mean i really wanted to read that your first uh your memoir mm. your first book I wanted to get some more information but i did read the prologue so i think i mean that that got me to kind of know what more or less where you came from mm. where you, or where you come from
1: which is dc that's right washington born D. C. in dc yeah. raised in virginia i uh, moved to man i've moved a lot i've moved almost 35 times yeah. in my life wow um grew that, up on the east coast but i've been on the west coast for a while now yeah.
0: hmm. But you've been also all over the world, not just yeah,
1: yeah. the country. Um, so I lived in Istanbul for almost a year. Uh, that was back in 2012. And then South America for five years. Okay. Argentina and Paraguay. Mainly yeah. Paraguay, yeah. between those two. That's where my wife is from, actually. Paraguay, yeah. Sí. Mm-hmm. Sí. I, sí. Yeah. Muy bien. How's es español? Eh, o sea, no, no es perfecto, pero, o sea, es, Hay andas. Eh, sí, yo, yo puedo comunicar, digamos, go. sí. Yeah. And uh, my writing is terrible though. <laughs> Street Spanish. Yeah. That's all I know. You know,
0: um I left, uh I stopped no, I shouldn't say I stopped speaking Spanish, but it definitely took a back seat mm. in, as far as languages when I moved here to West from to West Covina
1: from El Monte. Ah, okay. Yeah,
0: I had I mean I was just, I mean I was five years old and I just English the whole way.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh well public school was would- do that
0: to you too right, right? depending on where you if go you don't but... if you don't go to those esls you know right. which those are a crutch and they don't allow you to right. progress you know what yeah me? yeah yeah um but the way i learned was reading um my mom's uh like little bible mm. reading her bible in spanish and then uh and and then trying to write that's how i learned how to read how to not read but how to pick it back up well wow. you know a little bit more fluently yeah yeah that and then living with or you know, hanging out with my now wife back then girlfriend mm. I, had, I had to speak spanish in i else. learned
1: it through i mean i was living in south america obviously but the first mm, three or four months my wife had to translate for me yeah. i had lived in argentina back in 2003 in buenos aires and their accent is very different yeah. everything is jonesa, che, baludo, yeah. all <laughs> that it's almost italian the yeah. way that it sounds and so when i got to paraguay the accent couldn't be more different. I could not understand what anybody was saying because yeah. they, they have two official languages there, mm-hmm. Guarani and Spanish. And sidebar, I think in the future, we will definitely have two official languages in America. And, yeah. I, and I shouldn't say America, United States of America. because
0: We, are, we already do, English and Spanish. No. Official, right? <laughs> yeah, right.
1: Subway. Subway. <laughs> exactly, good play. So, um, yeah, so... Guaraní really, the way that they speak Guaraní which is an old old indigenous language it really shapes how they speak Spanish. Yeah. So if you don't know Guaraní and you and not just the way that they speak Spanish but half of the words they use are Guaraní. Mm-hmm. So I was just sitting around like what are they saying? I don't know and my wife would be translating. Yeah. And so I would go home frustrated because you know we're there I have to figure out how am I going to make a living, how am I going to survive here, how am I going to make friends. Right. And um, so what I did was I started watching uh, YouTube videos of Eduardo Galeano, Mm -hmm. who's one of my favorite writers of all time. He's Uruguayan originally. Um, He went into exile. He moved to, I think, Barcelona. Well, first to Argentina in the late 70s because... He was a journalist, and at that time, uh, it was very dangerous, dangerous to practice journalism in really? many Latin American countries. Yeah. Many of his colleagues disappeared, were shot to death, um, were imprisoned, went into exile. So he fled his country um, for his anti-dictatorship uh, views. He started a literary magazine in Argentina, and then he had to flee Argentina because they were starting to kill journalists there as wow. well. During yeah, the yeah. whole desaparecidos. Mm-hmm. that whole, um, I think 30,000 people disappeared and were never accounted for. Students, artists, poets, professors, journalists, uh, anybody who the government deemed dangerous.
0: Was that was that during the whole Pablo Escobar time or era? Escobar?
1: No. I would say Escobar came later. He was more the 80s, oh, right? Okay. Yeah. Like think yeah. like Wolf of Wolf of Wall Street yeah. and that whole era of excess. Pablo Escobar represented the extreme of that, right? Like yeah. I think, you know, he de- I'm sure he was um he was alive in the 70s and he was being formed at that time, but yeah. I think his kind of reign was in the 80s. Yeah. Um so, yeah, it's if I mean, anybody out there who's interested in Latin American history, it's a really uh, difficult time, the 70s, and a lot to learn from in terms of our own government's involvement with um, supporting those dictatorships yeah. in the name of freedom and democracy. Right, right. Of course. So, Eduardo then, in I think 84, they restored democracy to Uruguay. Eduardo returned, and he went on to become um, one of the most celebrated writers in Latin American history. Yeah. Beyond just his writing, though, I think I really appreciate his humanity. He never had this air of I'm a wise man who's going to tell you the way the world should be. He's very humble, very funny, very down-to-earth, and he always stood on the side of um, people who were facing injustice. He yeah. had tremendous anger towards injustice in the world. So anyways, I would you know watch his YouTube videos and you know, work through my own frustration with not being able to say shit in Spanish. And yeah. after a few months, it just clicked and I started, you know, learning how to speak. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's a muscle I don't want to forget how to use. Right. Mm. You have to practice it. You have to practice. You have to practice, yeah. to practice it very often. Very, uh, yeah, as much yeah. as possible. And LA
0: is a good place to uh, It's a good place.
1: It's a good place. Yeah. And having a wife whose first language is Spanish helps for sure, yeah. which is th- the case with my wife. What
0: was your um, major or, or your... The reason, re- reason why you moved out to uh, L.A.?
1: To Los Angeles? To Los Angeles. So originally, I moved well, I moved to L.A. first with my parents in, ninety. I think, 91 okay. for my dad's job. We were only here for two years. We came just in time for the L.A. riots. Perfect. Crash course in uh, Los Angeles culture and yeah. history. Uh, his job then sent us back to Virginia. Um, and then I came back to the West Coast for college, 2001. That mm-hmm. was actually in Orange County at Soka University of America. Right. Um, which is an incredible, incredible school. Yeah.
0: Which, by the way, you're the f- first class. Very so. first class. That's crazy. Which was an
1: amazing, yeah, I mean.
0: How does that feel to, be, yeah, to oh know, know you're the I mean, this, class is, or this university has been around in almost 20 years. Yeah, and, 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 and it, you're the, now
1: it's ranked like in the top, I think the latest rankings, it's in the top 30 liberal arts colleges in America. Yeah. And when we started, we weren't even sure if, like, the school would still be open in four yeah. years, you know yeah. what I mean? Um, no, you know, senior students to ask their advice about what to do. We had to create all of the clubs and the culture and yeah. um, student government, everything we had to build from the ground up. That in and of itself was an education. Of course. Learning, like, what does it mean to really create a community together? Yeah. And it, what's unique about it is it's students from all over the world. Um One of the main goals of the school is to foster global citizens, Mm -hmm. people who are rooted in their national culture and are proud of where they come from, but who are not blindly attached to that and can see the importance of working as uh, the planet, like transcending national differences. And what was, I think to me, like what best represents um, our experience was two weeks after the school opened, you know, this experiment in global citizenship, 9-11 happened. Ooh, Two so weeks later, and we're, do. like, looking in the huge TV screen in, in the cafeteria as the, the planes hit the Twin Towers. Yeah, My roommate actually was the only student from the Middle East in the first class. He's Turkish. Yeah, And um, I remember that night, like, when I came back to our dorm room, he was crying. He had tears in his eyes. And he said, this is not what the Middle East stands for. This is not what Islam stands for. Yeah. And he was just apologizing. And... You know, I told him you don't have to apologize. Like you didn't do anything, right. just because you're from there. Like, right. and unfortunately, like we swung it in you know in the opposite direction for a year where we were demonizing Islam. I mean, we're still to a certain extent our country, yeah. people in our country. Not everybody still demonizes Islam and Muslims, um, but that friendship with my roommate, his name is Sanan. Um, through that experience of being roommates, becoming like brothers, and just what 9/11 did to our country, to our national psyche. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we decided to. Our lifelong dream is to build uh, Soka University of Turkey yeah. in Istanbul as a bridge between North Africa, the Middle East, and Europe, having students come from all over to figure out how can we transcend these differences in history, culture, religion, economics, and work together. Yeah. Um, So that's actually why I moved to Istanbul in 2012 was to take the first step to make connections, to find allies, to find people who might be interested in a project like that.
0: And how's that uh, progress going?
1: Um, I would say I was successful in that there's about 10 people who now share that dream. Mm -hmm. Um, We identified the site where we want to build the university. Now we just have to raise half a billion dollars. That's there you go. A, yeah. That's not too so, bad. I mean, I think I've saved up like two hundred and thirty dollars yeah. towards it. So we're making progress. There you go. Um, no, but in all seriousness, like having having something to look forward to, because my goal is that we can accomplish that before I die, before Sanan and I die. So we both plan to live long lives. So it's not something that we're rushing towards. I mean, realistically speaking, the political climate in Turkey right now it would be impossible to open a university like that. Right. Um, and I don't wanna go into too much about why that is, but things, certain things would have to change for that to even be in the realm of possibility. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's so important in life to have larger dreams that we're working towards that are almost impossible because yeah. then when we face walls in our daily life, like we have something that reminds us, but I'm building towards something. Yeah. You know, so all the other things that I'm trying to accomplish now, it's all geared towards one day in the future, being able to have the type of resources to do something like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's that
0: journey. It's that journey that you're learning along the way to get you to where you want. And that's for know, sure. Yeah. That's
1: and it's hard to remember that sometimes. It is. When you know. life's kicking the shit out of you. You well, know what I mean? When you keep
0: running into that wall. Right. Sometimes
1: know? it's the same wall again and again. And right. Ask yourself, why do I keep encountering the same thing? Right. Hmm. yeah but you know if if you see it as like part of your training to become uh stronger to become wiser and to become better at you know navigating um you know those pitfalls in the future then at least you can find meaning in the midst of it yeah that's the worst is when you feel like there's no meaning to your struggle right you know that i think someone told me that that was how um in Chinese prison camps, that was one of the worst forms of torture. They would make people dig a hole all day long. And at the end of the day, they would say, okay, fill it back up. So hard labor in the sun with no purpose. Yeah, They weren't building anything. Yeah, They, they weren't were trying do- to get to anywhere. They're just- they were doing nothing. Mm-hmm. So, And I think sometimes when we're struggling, if, if we feel like this is meaningless, that makes it 100 times worse. Yeah. So I guess that's maybe that's one of the key challenges, right? is right. like how do we find meaning in the midst of our struggles? right? Mm. You talked about your training in life how how do you get your training? Where is it mm. that you get your training from? That's a great question. Without question, my training is rooted in my practice of Buddhism mm-hmm. um, I was born into a Buddhist family um, and you know it, it was always funny growing up like I remember I'm trying to think of examples like. In school, kids would always tease me, make fun of me, oh, you know, well, not beyond just teasing me, a lot of them would say, you're going to hell, like, when I'm five, you know, six years old, you're going to burn in hell for eternity, and I've always been stubborn, so that would make me even more, like, determined to tell people that I'm Buddhist. Mm -hmm. Like, I used to refuse to do the Pledge of Allegiance in first grade, because it says, and no offense to anybody that believes in God, but it says, one nation under God, Yeah. And I wasn't raised to believe in a Christian notion of God. I of course I believe in the divinity of all life and in the you know, divinity of the universe that the universe, the power of the universe exists within all life and all existence. It's right. not that I'm anti religious, but because I was being told every day you're gonna go to hell unless you accept our way of thinking, yeah, that was my form of, you know, rebellion. first grade rebellion is yeah. kiss my ass, I'm not gonna do the <laughs> pledge of allegiance. You're right. You know, that being said, um, um, you know, I think a lot of my friends, a lot of people in general in America, their perception of Buddhism is that it's a bunch of monks wearing orange robes with shaved heads who retreat to the mountaintop. There are forms of Buddhism that that's exactly what it is it's monks who shave their heads and retreat from society. Mm -hmm. There's two major Mm -hmm. schools of Buddhism Theravada and Mahayana. Theravada tends to be more secluded, isolated, esoteric, you know, retreating from society. Mahayana in general is really about engaging with society. That truth and enlightenment is found in the midst of the struggle of daily life. You can't retreat from life and think you're going to become enlightened. It's only by facing your problems, challenging daily life, engaging with life, and engaging with people that you can develop wisdom. Yeah. Um, and so m- even more specifically, I practice with the Soka Gakkai International. Um, it was founded in 1930 based on the teachings of a reformist uh, Buddhist uh, scholar and philosopher and monk from the 13th century named Nichiren Dai Shonen. So he was basically, you know, like the whole um, story of Martin Luther and the Reformation with right. the church. Yeah. He's the Martin Luther of Buddhism because in Japanese society, feudal, feudal society, at that time basically um, buddhism was something that people became monks basically to get an education and to make money and to become more powerful like it was completely divorced from daily people's lives yeah and people were told you know if if you want to attain enlightenment make donations to the priests like so religion was there was this intermediary you have to go through the temple you have to go through these priests in order to practice Buddhism. Right. So it wasn't religion for the people. It was religion for the priestly caste. Um, so Nichiren Daishonin, at a very young age, he was disgusted by that. And he thought the, the whole purpose of the founding of Buddhism was to help people become happy, yeah. to challenge their sufferings. This is doing the exact opposite. It's like, what, what was it Karl Marx said, the opiate of the masses, right? Mm-hmm. Um, And so he really, he just threw his whole life into studying every Buddhist teaching ever documented. And his conclusion after many years of study and struggle was that he was able to create a concrete practice of chanting Nam-myoho-renge-kyo. Nam-myoho-renge-kyo means, Nam means devotion. Mm -hmm. Uh, Myoho means mystic law or cause and effect. Renge means, um, I'm sorry, Myoho means yeah. Myoho means mystic law. Renge means cause and effect or lotus blossom. I'm gonna explain how this all ties together. Yeah. Now myoho, renge kyo. Is kyo is basically sound or teaching. So what that means is I devote myself to the mystic law. The mystic law is like, for example, if I take this, if I drop it, that happened. That's we take that for granted. Oh, so what? You drop the thing of altoids. But right. there's a law of gravity at work that we can't see. Or if you turn on your television, the way that TVs work to, or even radio, like we're doing a podcast right now, invisible radio waves Mm -hmm. can be transmitted and harnessed to create, to have sound travel around the entire world. And we take that for granted because we just turn on a button and it works, but there's these profound laws of science that are at work behind that. So the mystic law in the context of Buddhism is the law of life and death that underlies all existence in the universe it's what ties the entire universe harmonizes all from from you know the planets and the stars to the individual's functions in their body it's the law of life and death so we're devoting ourselves to this law through sound by chanting so in this this principle of cause and effect the lotus blossom um, the lotus blossom is the only flower in the world that it both seeds and flowers at the same time. Mm-hmm. So what that symbolizes is in Buddhism we we believe that cause and effect is simultaneous. So when you think, when you speak and when you act, you're making a cause. We make causes every moment of every day through our thoughts, through our words, through our actions. And, you know, a lot of times people think, well, I make a cause now and the effect, you know, is maybe it'll come much much later. That's yeah. true, you may not see the effect till later but it's this idea that your cause is registered instantaneously in your karma your karmic storehouse mm-hmm. so you're you're creating kind of like a a storehouse of all causes that you make from moment to moment and so the sum total of your existence is the causes that you make the way that you like the way a person's mindset is is visible in their face yeah right you can see the same person who's consumed by depression or suffering and you see that mindset completely visible in their face or if they're happy they they look completely different or if you see people who like maybe used to be you know moving towards a down a criminal path when they were younger their whole face their whole existence looks different because of the the nature of how they think how they speak how they act and so buddha so i'm not trying to be too you know esoteric philosophical what does this actually mean for ordinary people, it means that by chanting nam myoho we can manifest this limitless wisdom and power and energy from within our own life, yeah. that the Buddha is life itself. The Buddha is not some supernatural being that we should be worshiping or venerating. Oh, Buddha, please save me. Right. Buddha exists inside of you. You are the Buddha. Yeah. It's just a matter of awakening that Buddha potential within your own life. Um it's not something that like you know we we don't subscribe to blind belief at all. It's very scientific. Try it out. Try chanting. Chant for things you want to see happen or change. If it works, keep chanting. Keep you know keep trying new things. Do experiments. If it doesn't work, don't waste your time. Yeah. Um. So that's in a nutshell. Like that. You asked me. You know what my training is. Definitely, uh, Buddhism. Uh, practicing Buddhism and then also learning from my mentor in life, Daisaku Ikeda. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's the current president of the Soka Gakkai, the Buddhist organization I belong to. Um, you know, I'll be honest, man. Like when I was um, in... I mean, that's what you mentioned the book earlier. A lot of the book is about my miseducation as a youth, how I yeah. didn't understand the purpose of going to school. And I was um, expelled from public school in eighth grade, was really lost for a while, you know. Yeah. Um. And was it
0: because you didn't want to say the pledge of allegiance? It
1: probably all started with that. <laughs> that was that was the beginning of my downfall, for sure. <laughs> no, I mean I think I had a lot of um I think moving a lot played into it. My parents got divorced. I didn't understand why that was. I was angry. And then just the type of friends that I was surrounding myself with, yeah. you know, we would smoke weed 10 times a day, drink hard liquor at, you know, 10 o'clock in the morning. This is like at the age of 13. So if you're 13 and you're already drunk and high all day long every day, like you're already not going to make good decisions even when you're sober when you're 13. So you add that in and you just, you start doing dumb shit, you know? And and I was always a follower because I moved so much. I was always like trying to fit in because I was always a new kid. So I wasn't really... I didn't have a lot of confidence. I was a follower, and so I was following the wrong people and just doing things I knew were wrong just to impress people, to become a part of their crew theory, or yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so I got expelled, and by junior year I had a 1.1 GPA. Um, my guidance counselor said, "Don't even bother taking the SATs. Not everybody's meant to go to college." <laughs> yeah. And I listened to her. I didn't take the SATs. Yeah. I like, "I'm gonna." And I, so I was, I. Took my mom out to lunch summer before senior year and told her, I'm, I'm going to drop out. Like, I can't, there's no way I can finish high school. Yeah. I can't do this anymore. She was so disappointed, man. Like, she was really disappointed. But she knew, like, I had to figure out for myself what I was going to do, whether it was get my GED or whatever. And then everything changed, like, a month later, like, within the course of just a few months, like. Four or five of my friends died. Um, I got arrested. DUI was facing a year in jail. Um, My mom got really sick. She has a lot of autoimmune diseases. Just things just started falling apart. Yeah. Yeah. And when I got arrested, uh, I got my car impounded that night. I had gone into the city to buy drugs and got arrested on the way home. And they said, you can either spend the night in jail or walk home. And I was like, I think 11 miles from home. It was 4 o'clock in the morning, but it was like 95 degrees. It was yeah. a hot, you know, D.C. summer. And so I said, I'm going to walk home. And so I had a lot of time to think on the way home. And I thought my dad was going to kick me out of the house because it just had been one thing after another, you yeah. know. And he invited, they were divorced at that time, but he invited her over and we had dinner. And they said, we just want you to become happy. We know you're miserable. You're not happy. You can become happy if you take responsibility for your own life and try practicing Buddhism, yeah. you know, the philosophy you were born into. And it was just something about how sincere they were, and I could really feel that that's really all that they cared about was me overcoming the shit that was just controlling my life that was making me make so many poor decisions, it and was, it was myself. And so I started chanting that night, and... um Man, within a few months, like my whole mindset shifted about everything. And I realized I was blaming everything and everybody outside of myself for my own unhappiness. Wasn't actually taking any responsibility for all the causes that I was making. And so that was the first benefit that I got from practicing was understanding the nature of cause and effect. That if you want to change your future, look at what causes you're making right now in this moment buddhism is really about mastering the moment yeah how much can you really and i mean that's true i think for a lot of disciplines a lot of i think a lot of you know whether it's boxing or certain forms of art music jazz especially um you know mastery comes down to how much can you single-mindedly devote yourself to mastering this moment putting your whole existence into what it is that you're doing um and so I started doing my best to do that and battling my own tendencies trying to stop smoking and drinking every day and and it was during that time that I started reading books written by Daisaku Ikeda the person who I consider my mentor. Yeah. And I think after being expelled from school, I, a quick anecdote about that. The vice uh, principal in my middle school, she kind of during it was like a 3 month process leading up to the school board trial. And she befriended my family. She, she told me, you know, Nathan, I really believe in you. I want you to stay in our school. I don't want you to, you know, get lost in the system and get expelled. So I just need you to work with me, and I need you to, you know, she would interview me and my family, like, multiple times. The day of the school board trial, she, was, she stood up in front of everybody, and she said, it's my conclusion that... Um, Nathan is an animal who doesn't deserve to be educated with normal children. Wow. And she listed off. So the whole time she had been building a case against me to yeah. get me expelled. Yeah. And I think at that moment I was like, fuck adults. Yeah. I don't trust any of them. Yeah. They're all full of shit. Excuse my language. I don't know if this is a PG podcast. Well, it was. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> Just change the ratings. <laughs> you got to change the setting change on the, the YouTube setting, channel. Yeah. So I really stopped trusting adults at that point. And I think, and just people in general, and I think there was something in the humanity and sincerity that I could feel in Daszakurikira's writings and his belief in young people. I think that's one of his main, what he stands for is that young people are the most important factors in terms of changing the world. And I had never heard anybody say that, you know, maybe my parents said it, but you don't listen to what your parents say. Right, yeah. And to know where he came from, what he came, what he went through, you know, he lost, he lost everything in World War II. His house was firebombed. His older brother was killed in the war. He had tuberculosis from the age of thirteen. He couldn't go to college; he was too poor. And from that, by by, he chose a mentor, Jose Toda, the second president of the Soka Gakkai. He worked under him for eleven years, and Jose Toda trained him, taught him everything that he knew. Dasaku Ikeda has now earned more than 300 honorary doctorates from universities around the world, which is more than anybody in human history. Wow! And he never even went to college. Yeah. And it it just showed me like he's someone that walks the walk. Yeah. You know what I mean? He's about what he writes about. It's there's not this disconnect between what he says and what he does. And I decided at a very young age, you know, you need a teacher in anything in life, whether you want to be better at basketball or be a good artist like if you really want to do well you need whether it's a living or a dead teacher you have to choose someone as a example of yeah. a master of your discipline so in terms of mastering life and mastering buddhism i chose him as my mentor and i would say that that's definitely the single most important decision i've ever made in my life because everything i've been able to change every you know all the good things that have happened in my life since then I attribute to that decision to walk the path of mentor and disciple. Yeah. Since then, mm.
0: damn, um, you know that it definitely makes you commit to something, right? When you do something like that, and you you challenge yourself. Mm. Um, we're talking about those obstacles of hitting the wall, climbing over the wall, for sure. You know, you you said that the Buddhism is kind of where there's two forms. You, the second form that you're you're mentioning was not so much running away from it mm. but taking in onto it right mm-hmm. it's kind of like we we talk about it a lot here on the show is for example electronics mm. right. we know what it's doing to the kids with the cell phones and all that stuff right and we always talk about you can't take that stuff away but you got to just kind of turn roll with the punches so to speak right in boxing but you got to kind of learn to adapt mm. you know put some restrictions around there or, or whatever i don't know just kind of Little, little bit of a bubble, I mean, when you're talking about that, um, but uh, I, I did want to ask you about about Buddhism mm. I think there's a lot of uh, people talk about how it's it's very similar to Hinduism, and you know when you look at the the Buddha, the statue right that you, know, you see it's, it's very similar to the Hindu. How is they so different I mean mm. with uh, Buddhism
1: and hinduism it's a great question. so Buddhism emerged from Hindu culture. Mm-hmm. So Shakyamuni Buddha, the original teacher who founded the, you know, philosophy of Buddhism, he was born into a Hindu society. So definitely he was, you know, breathing Hinduism from a young age. That was like the background noise of his life. Yeah. You know, everything around him was governed by Hindu philosophy. Um I'm definitely not as well versed in Hinduism as I am in Buddhism. Um you know i know in hinduism there's i've noticed that there's like they talk a, a lot about different gods there's like hundreds thousands of gods in hinduism right. um there's definitely um uh, yeah i i don't want to talk too much about it because i don't know that much but what i do know is that um what Sha- shakamuni was born into a wealthy family he was a prince actually he could have had the easiest life possible. And he did for like the first nineteen, twenty years. And his parents really sheltered him from the reality outside the palace gates. Mm-hmm. And legend has it that when he finally left the palace and really, really went in amongst the people in, in his city, you know, he saw people dying in the streets. He saw beggars. He saw people um, with leprosy, things he had never seen before. And that really kind of opened his eyes and made him think, What do i actually know about life and so he he voluntary voluntarily renounced his inheritance left the palace and went on a religious quest to understand life and you know his um he studied definitely he studied the vedas hinduism he's i'm sure he studied i bet you at that time we don't talk about this too much but i bet you There was influences from Greek society. There was probably so much like scholarship from other cultures. I bet you he might have learned about, um, you know, because I think Socrates and that whole movement in Greece was happening around the same time or a little bit before. So, I mean, he basically studied as much as he could and tried to learn from as many teachers as possible. And his conclusion was that, um, you know, basically that we all have the buddha nature within within inside of us his he taught for almost 5 decades and basically his his enlightenment that he reached of his own study he understood that it's really difficult for ordinary people with so many responsibilities and problems to actually have the time to be able to invest that amount of time in studying religion right, right. like he had that luxury in that time and so he spent many decades trying to educate people. The whole like this whole notion that Shakamuni was a fat dude that sat around and meditated, it's it's a complete fiction. Yeah. And that that's just because it's like the game of telephone times two thousand years through a hundred different countries. It's gonna change change, exactly. He was he was more like Gandhi or Martin Luther King. He was walking everywhere. He was walking from village to village. He was talking to thousands of people. He was an educator. Yeah. That's what he wasn't. He was not fat if he walked that much. <laughs> I mean, you know, unless like he was just eating like a lot of, you know, fatty foods and yeah. I don't know but. Yeah. He was on the on the move talking to people. And that was he was developing his own philosophy through his dialogues with people. You know, that sharpened his sword, so to speak, yeah. his philosophical sword. And in the last kind of decade of his life, he revealed the Lotus Sutra, um, in which he really taught that, you know, until now you you all thought that I was teaching the truth, but in fact, I was just preparing you towards, it's kind of like, how do you teach trigonometry to third graders? You can't, you have to develop step by step their understanding. So he spent decades developing people's capacity and in the final decade of his life, he revealed that I didn't attain enlightenment for the first time in this lifetime. Enlightenment is internally inherent inside each of our lives. And so in a sense, he was remembering what is already within him. Yeah, And kind of, so that that's one aspect of it. Um, So yeah, so I think, I mean, I think if we look at like I think Hinduism, I'm not exactly sure, but I think the caste system in India, where depending on what caste you're born into, there's a certain lower caste that can only do really, really like uh, like basically clean sewers. That's their job. Yeah. If you're born into that caste, you have to clean the sewer the rest of your life. Damn. And you can't do anything else. And people from different castes look at you as being worse than a cow. Yeah. You're not even human. You're worse than an animal. Um, and I think that may be woven into some of the philosophy of Hinduism. I'm not entirely sure. Yeah. Um, so that's, our, you know, maybe we can post in the show notes. We can yeah. go back and I don't want mis- to like misrepresent.
0: That. Yeah. I was tr- I'm just trying to understand. I know I'm not going to understand Buddhism in, in 30, 40 minutes. In one show, yeah. yeah. But, uh, you know, it just seems as if it's almost like therapy like a therapist, you know, Mm. it's a, it's a a philosophy that once you get in, you get what you want from it. Mm. Whereas most religions are like that, right? I mean, most, Mm. but there's a lot and not to pick on any religions, but you know, there's a lot of religions that tell you, this is the way that you need to think. This is the way that you need to do it. Yeah. And this is the way. Yeah. But it's, it's what a certain individual gets from that. Absolutely. Now, you know that, you know, for example, there's a misconception again with Buddhism that I've read. They don't, none of them you know drink alcohol
1: i'm going to have a beer tonight Another when i smoke. get home yeah again
0: <laughs> misconceptions uh yeah no they don't eat meat mm. you know what i mean there's all these things but it's not again i i am trying to rationalize what what it what it means buddhism and, and sure. i don't i don't think it's much of a religion as it is an idea mm. you know uh it's
1: like a life philosophy yeah it's an engaged it's a practice and a philosophy and then you said uh, i forget his
0: name but the the one that traveled the prince shakamuni shakamuni uh like you said he grabbed a little bit of everything and then made his own whatever he felt was right Mm. you know and and i think that's what most people uh uh need to do and and laura tells me all the time just gotta be nice Mm. if we're all nice to each other then there's no reason that you need to hate someone Mm. uh dislike this and that so then you're gonna you know talk shit about them you know yeah yeah it's just easier if you're nice to everyone yeah 'Cause you get what you know, you're getting what you want from
1: it. You know? For sure. And I think that's I mean, that's one of the key insights of religion in general and Buddhism in particular is it's hard to be nice to people if you yourself aren't happy. Yeah. You know? So creating harmonious relationships like whether it's in our family, in our neighborhood, in the government, between governments, between countries. I mean, we can, you know, look at all these external factors, but Ultimately, most of the suffering we see in the world is people who are leading, taking the lead, have certain blind spots, certain prejudices, certain um, misconceptions about other people. And I think people themselves have to change within to be able to work together harmoniously. Right. Mm -hmm. Like it takes a lot of effort to to be nice, like to actually, to, to genuinely, I mean, some people I think are just born with a sunny disposition and that's great. You know, I envy them. Um, but I think like to really be nice and to mean it, in other words, beyond just like smiling at people, but like to really care about people beyond just our immediate family, to care about what happens to your neighbor, to care about, um, what happens to people in your community. It's like, I think that requires us to understand how deeply interconnected we actually are. That, you know, and I, I truly believe this is something Jose Toda, the second president of the Sukagaka, used to say, in the future science will prove the validity of Buddhism. Um meaning science is going to show that ultimately our lives are not separate from each other. Consciousness is not separate. Yeah. And one amazing example I heard of that is like if you think about waves on the surface of the ocean, each wave is, there's never two waves that are the same, right? There's only that one wave. Right. But that wave is the ocean itself. How is the wave not the ocean? The wave is a manifestation of the ocean, yeah. but it's a unique manifestation that will never repeat again. So Jose Toto used to say people are like waves on the surface of the universe, your life is a manifestation of the entire ocean of the entire universe that's you are the universe yeah. but you're a unique manifestation of it your individual existence if we can if we develop that ability whether it's through education i think education plays a huge key like to feel like okay if that's true if my life is that vast that means like if i'm you know hurting that person i'm hurting a part of myself Right. And it's really difficult to really know that beyond theory, to really feel that. Um, but I think unless, you know, we're able to um, figure out ways, like whether it's through our educational systems or through culture or through there's plenty of ways that we can do that. I Social think. media. Social media. Right. <laughs> yeah. um,
0: uh, that's probably the worst part about it. There's so much ignorance out there because of it.
1: And, yeah. And it gets, you know, perpetuated yeah. and one like and reach like a million people in 10 seconds Yeah, 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 <laughs> for sure
0: well i mean that's kind of i mean i know we'll, we'll bring this to uh we'll wrap up the show pretty quick right now uh, i know you got somewhere to go but um it kind of li- gets me to your next uh, novel now, mm. we, won't, we, won't, we won't talk too much about it because sure. again it's not ready it's not published yet Mm-mm-mm. but uh is the title set rewrite these walls
1: yeah unless the publishing house that whoever decides to pick it sometimes they do say actually we're going to change the title yeah. so hopefully that doesn't happen yeah <laughs> Uh, but for now. Yeah, for now, for <laughs> now, for now.
0: But uh, I, I did. Uh, can we promote your your video? Uh sure, 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 if sure. We pro- if you, we can promote your video, it's on YouTube. Yeah. Uh, Just
1: type rewrite these walls. Rewrite these walls. Uh, I created a short little ghetto book trailer for the. It's for really the video. good. Uh, he it's... says it's, I paid him under the table to say that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, I, really, I, I do. I, I liked it. It's really good. It's, Thank it's, you. Uh, it's, especially right now what we're going through. You know, mm. with, with the whole uh with the wall i mean yeah rewrite these walls yeah you guys check it out you guys really got to look at it um appreciate that i hope it does get picked up soon uh i can't wait to read uh your memoir uh the title is songs to make the desert bear
1: fruit Mm -hmm. it's not a long title it's a long title (laughs) it's not a long title it's long Uh, if you read it it will make sense yeah
0: okay but uh yeah i can't wait like i said i read the prologue but i can't wait to read the rest of it and uh Yeah, thank you uh, for coming on. Of course. And any way you want to close us out right now? Uh,
1: No, just I really appreciate the opportunity, Um, whether it's a podcast or, you know, at a coffee shop or I think the more opportunities we can create for people to meet and talk and make connections, it's all positive. It's great. So I just appreciate the chance to be able to talk, and I hope everybody out there enjoyed listening to us. There you go. Mm. I appreciate you. Of course.
0: All right. Well, this is Fidel. That's Nathan. Talking again podcast of tap. We're tapping out.